0: Welcome to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Rupa Palai.
1: And I'm Jonah Rubin.
0: Today we'll be hearing an interview Jonah did with Syeda Hojit on her article, Ascertaining Deadly Harms, Aesthetics and Politics of Global Evidence, published in the February 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology. Professor Hojit is an Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Cornell University. So, Jonah, before we hear the interview, maybe you could set the stage a bit for this article.
1: So in 2006, the World Health Organization, the WHO, published a report on the topic of female genital cutting. And this was meant to be the definitive report on the topic, bringing all sorts of new empirical data to bear on the subject.
0: But what can an anthropologist possibly add to a discussion about whether or not a procedure has health consequences?
1: Well, as you'll hear in the interview, anthropologists have done a great deal of work to try and think about what it means to create knowledge.
0: So you're talking about how scientific facts impact the societies that receive them?
1: Well, in part, yes, but it goes well beyond that, too, to questions of what exactly science is and what it does, as you'll hear in our interview.
0: Interesting. Well, I think we should hear what you and Professor Hojic had to talk about.
1: Definitely, let's hear it. And I should warn listeners that... Sometimes our recording technology is not quite the highest tech stuff here in Anthropod Central. So I hope that you'll bear with us through some of the background noise to hear what's really a fascinating take on science and anthropology.
0: We'll forgive you this time.
1: (laughs) Thanks. Saida Hojic, welcome to Anthropod.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So for starters, I was hoping you could give us a bit of context about the WHO study. Why did the WHO decide to launch a study on female genital cutting? And what was going on with the public debate about the practice that made a study like this seem so urgent?
2: It's probably important to understand that the public debates you're referring to are not all unified. There are many kinds of public debates, and we have the appearance of one public debate, even in the United States. And so the WHO was responding to more than one debate, and I'll tell you a little bit about several of them. So there are media debates, activist debates, feminist debates, and there are also these technocratic debates in the public health and global governance regimes, and of course there's academic debates. And some of them are more sensationalist about cutting than others. So there were multiple reasons for the WHO to embark on this project. One of the main reasons was that the WHO was responding to the sensationalism that underlies many of the debates about the harms of cutting. And the WHO put a lot of faith into the idea that knowledge can counteract sensationalism, that a certain kind of rationality can counteract sensationalism. This was particularly important for the WHO because it had been going through this self-reflective process and realizing that they had co-produced some of this sensationalism. So just the other day, actually, I came across a poster, an early poster from the 1980s from the WHO that says, what are the consequences of female genital cutting? I'm not sure what the poster says. It could be circumcision or mutilation. And then it lists them. And then in bold letters, it says death and, you know, those others are enlarged. That was just one kind of sensationalism. There are others. And WHO decided that having seeing themselves as complicit and being accused of being complicit with these discourses, they wanted to correct them. But that was just one of the reasons. There were others, and some are internal to the organization, such as the idea that WHO contributed to what is called the medicalization of debates about cutting. So normally in medical anthropology, the term medicalization refers to something else. So I want to explain the difference here. In medical anthropology, medicalization refers to the framing or casting of social phenomena or social problems as medical problems. So something like menstruation becomes a disease or a medical problem, even though it doesn't have to be, for instance. In WHO discourse, medicalization means something else, or in the discourse on cutting, it means that by only talking about the health consequences of cutting, the organization inadvertently may have contributed to the rise of medical procedures as opposed to other kinds of procedures of cutting. So to have sort of moved the ritual from the circumciser to the health professional. And the WHO didn't think that it had contributed to that, but they had to respond to that accusation. And that was one of the reasons for the study. They thought if they prove that women who deliver in hospitals and have medical care also have health consequences of cutting, they can show that no matter where cutting is performed or how it's performed, there are effects to it. And some other reasons include the transformations of what counted as the proper way of addressing cutting and addressing reproduction. The WHO was switching from the population control and population planning model to the reproductive rights model. And that meant taking gender and women's rights seriously. The particular department that produced this study had been in prior years and prior decades researching various uh, methods of contraception, and they were really focusing on what is best for the state and the population establishment. So what is the most effective way to have family planning, for instance? And that meant that the rights of specific women who were to be given medication or implants or other kinds of methods were not foregrounded. They were looking at it at the macro scale of population as the object of concern. And shifting to the rights-based model meant that they were to take the individual women's rights as, at least in theory, the primary concern and the primary object of analysis and intervention. And they kind of chose cutting as the issue that would highlight their shift towards rights. There were other reasons, such as wanting to base their policies on evidence. And so the concept of evidence is is really important here because rather than knowledge, evidence is kind of like knowledge magnified, multiplied, but also ossified. It, it becomes fetishized as a special kind of knowledge. And in this sense, it had to be big, it had to have big data, big N, and it had to be global. So that was one of the reasons why they designed the study in the way that they designed it. And the WHO wanted to produce that kind of really, really solid knowledge that would count as evidence. And it received funding from a donor organization to do so. And two of the people interviewed mentioned that funding is one of the primary reasons for the study. So we might say that there wasn't one reason for the study, but there was like an assemblage of conditions that motivated the WHO to produce this research.
1: Well, let's pick up on that line because I think that to many of our listeners, that language of bringing evidence to bear on an unsolved question, on a gap of knowledge, as you (laughs) call it in the article, is a method that they'll feel very comfortable with. So they'll say, we don't know the extent of the harms caused by female genital cutting, so let's do a study, let's study it empirically. In your article, however, you ask us to consider exactly what this sort of framing of the problem does. So just what is a gap in knowledge and how does this language of gaps delimit the kinds of conclusions that the WHO was capable of arriving at for this study?
2: A gap presupposes that something else already exists and that something else is already known. And we might think about that idea of a gap visually. So how do you visualize a gap? And I was thinking about imagining a piece of fabric and you have this piece of fabric and you see something cut out of it or something missing, let's say it was torn or something, and that's a gap. When the WHO says we need to fill this gap, it means that this overall fabric needs to be sort of repaired or mended or sewn shut, if, to follow one of the cutting metaphors itself. Mm-hmm. And so this means that for the WHO, the overall fabric of knowledge is not in question. So the WHO says we know that there's this fabric, and the fabric here are the harmful consequences of cutting. And rather, there's this one little bit that we don't know, and this bit needs to be specified. That's a very specific way of thinking about research. So how else might we think about research? So I like to think of research as something that doesn't presuppose that there's this larger fabric, that research is something that gives us the opportunity to find out something radically new, that we might find out not only new answers to a question we already have, but that we might get to ask new questions. And so then rather than imagining this fabric that has a gap in it, We might say, well, we don't know that we're going to have a fabric at all, or what it might look like if we have a fabric. For the WHO, the fabric was already known, and that fabric were the harms of cutting. So holding that fabric meant that some questions were not going to be asked, and that some ways of analyzing the data might end up framing the results in ways that then contribute to the sensationalism that the WHO originally wanted to counteract, and that they originally really struggled with. But once you say that we're going to examine maternal mortality, you bring into being, or not really bring into being, but continue the life of the idea that cutting contributes to death.
1: So what Uh, other sorts of framings could there have been in this instance?
2: Well, let's say the WHO could have said, let's find out whether cutting has obstetric consequences, not what kinds of aesthetic consequences it has, and, you know, we already have these that we want to kind of think about, and death is one of them. If the WHO had not presupposed the idea of death, that notion, the notion of death, would not have found its way into the article and then into the press release and into the newspaper articles that came after So we would have not had this sensationalism that says that study proved that cutting is a killer.
1: So just to complete the metaphor, instead of saying what goes in this hole in the cloth, they could have said, what type of cloth are we holding? So let's talk about your methods for a minute. For those of us who have a sense of the sorts of studies popularly associated with the discipline of cultural anthropology... A WHO report might seem like a strange object for ethnographic analysis in the sense that it's not a group of people bound together in a common society or culture in an obvious sense, but it's so textually and institutionally grounded. Mm -hmm. In the February issue, however, you show us that ethnographic sensibilities can yield great insights into these types of knowledge productions. As an anthropologist, can you tell us a bit about how you approached conducting ethnographic analysis into this report?
2: The WHO may be a somewhat unusual institution to study in some ways. But anthropologists have studied other types of institutions all along. So the history of anthropology is also a history of studying institutions. And so what we see now is just an expansion of the kinds of institutions that we study, as well as of what counts as a proper object for ethnographic analysis. And so as we speak... Global health institutions, humanitarian institutions, non-governmental institutions, states are being studied by a great number of cultural and medical anthropologists. So this conception of anthropology as studying ethnic and other kinds of small-scale groups has in some ways perhaps never fully existed, but definitely in the last 30 years, it has been vastly exploded from within. The other thing is that documents might also look unusual as anthropological arts, but if one studies uh, processes of governance or what we also call governmentality, the role of documents is really crucial to examine. As a graduate student, I read ethnographies that study documents, such as Jim Ferguson's work on development apparatus and the ways in which the construction of knowledge plays a role in the kinds of interventions that are being imagined and then also supported by the development industry. And also by, who is now my colleague, Annalise Riles, the work on production of documents at the United Nations and production of documents by NGOs. And so since I was going to study an NGO or multiple NGOs in Ghana, I was interested in how they produce knowledge. And this wasn't just an esoteric interest in a sense that this is something that they actually do all the time. They produce knowledge all the time. This is one of the major aspects of their work. And so that knowledge ends up in a form of reports and documents. That's kind of the background. But I actually came to this WHO study from a different angle, I didn't set out to do a research on a document. I set out to conduct research following, in this case, one NGO, in all its local, national, and transnational dimensions. And this was one of the dimensions. The head of the NGO, the director, is also a medical doctor who was a principal investigator of the WHO study. And so following his work on the production of medical knowledge was for me just another aspect of following his work producing other kinds of knowledge about cutting that was more locally bound. So that's how I came to this research. So it wasn't really that I was interested, oh, there's this Lancet article or there's this WHO study. I came to it from within Ghana, from the desire to follow all the aspects of transgressing scale that the NGO was involved in.
1: How did you as an ethnographer then produce the sort of fine-grained analysis about this document. You didn't set out to follow the document per se, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, there. how do you as an anthropologist bring the sort of tools of ethnography to bear on this sort of object?
2: Well, one of them is using the anthropological method of observing. So I observed the WHO meetings and also interviewed the principal investigators and the people who were designing the study whom I got to meet. And some of them I got to talk to over the course of years. So most of them I only met once, but several of them I met as this study was being processed, let's say, and as the research was being finalized and published. And so it was on the basis of those that I came to be interested in the first place, really, in finding out more. And then afterwards, once my interest was picked, I looked at the social life of this research by literally following it. And also, it came to me. I didn't also have to follow <laughs> it that, that much. I and The research that I keep conducting, well, I, I, hope, I hope I'm no longer conducting it, but the research that I was conducting at the time meant, let's say, going to a meeting in D.C., On where multiple kinds of global health organizations and women's rights organizations are meeting to talk about cutting. And then there's a presentation about the WHO study. And then I look at how it's presented, who is presenting, how is the audience responding, and what's happening with the claims. So, in some ways, conducting research on cutting meant that the study also came to me, that I didn't always have to follow it. But I looked at some of the ways in which it traveled through the media and through the, this global governance regime that has interventions against cutting.
1: Now, of course, you're not the first anthropologist to comment on this specific study. In fact, when the study came out of the WHO, a great many anthropologists objected that their conclusions about the negative effects of female genital cutting had been contaminated by political considerations. The WHO, of course, responded by saying that it had followed the strictest scientific protocol and that it was free of ideological bias. But in your article, you point to a way out of this quagmire. Can you talk a little bit about why it's misguided to do think about this strictly in terms of whether the WHO acted scientifically or politically. So
2: anthropologists and others, science studies scholars, feminists, have long believed and asserted that all knowledge is political and that there's actually no separation between science and politics. The devil, then, is in the detail, and that means in the details of knowledge-making practices, and also in the language that we use. So I find it important to think carefully about what we mean by politics. In this article, I write about the difference between governmental politics and ideology. Anthropologists who first reacted to the WHO study raised some really, really important questions. But they mobilized the notion of politics as ideology, and by that they meant that politics as they understood it was above and over the entire research-slash-scientific process. And some even went to claim, so far as the claim, that WHO manipulated the data in an illegitimate way. So not just sort of constructed numbers in the way in which we talk about social construction, but literally conducted dirty science. This accusation, as I see it, can be made of any research, and that includes anthropological research, and I find it important to examine the logics that guide the production of knowledge. And so when I discuss the difference between ideology and governmental politics, I rely on a couple of authors in the article. And the idea is that ideology is not just politics of any kind, but politics that converts passions into knowledge and then becomes this master narrative. And in contrast, governmental politics is the construction of cutting as an object of intervention. And this construction happens within a regime of power that is here global health and global governance. And so that is something very different. And it doesn't lead to a single story-like explanation. It's not a master narrative that dictates results, but it is a framework that shapes what kinds of questions are asked how they're asked, how the research is designed, why it's designed, and how it ends up being interpreted. What
1: about the flip side of this? Why Mm -hmm. is the WHO defending itself in terms of saying that it's pure science, that this is not politically contaminated? Why is that sort of phrasing Mm -hmm. equally Mm -hmm. problematic?
2: This is problematic and it's also really common. What interests me as an anthropologist who also considers herself a social scientist and who believes that many researchers are aware of the limits of our knowledge and the way that it cannot ever be pure is that this debate takes the form of accusations and of controversy. And this is something that that I detail in the article which is once you have an accusation of ideology the typical response is one of, no, we're doing pure science. Also, once you have an accusation at all, not just of ideology, but let's say of lack of quality, people who are defending the turf might also respond with, no, this is sound science. So this is one of the common responses, and it was in this case shaped by the media because the debate between anthropologists and the WHO was staged in the media on the New York Times blog by one journalist. And he was particularly interested in staging the debate in those terms. If anybody had asked the WHO, can you please tell us about some of the considerations that went into the production of this research that were not purely scientific? I'm not sure that they wouldn't have gotten some more nuanced responses, but WHO was not in that position. Rather, they had to defend themselves, and they believed that claiming the brain of pure science would be an appropriate defense.
1: Well, this relates to what for me was one of the most fascinating parts of your article, which is the idea that publics and the media are not simply passive consumers of objective scientific data, but in fact that we help generate these meanings of the study as well. What's the role of these press releases and media reporting like the New York Times debate when it comes to constructing the very meanings of the WHO report?
2: Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a particular situation here because the WHO as an institution had a role in shaping the meanings of the study in ways in which let's say purely academic research does not so if i as a simple professor produce an article there's not necessarily an institutional response to it, or, well, there's rarely an institutional framing of it. But the WHO as an institution had a stake in this research, which is why it was produced in the first place. And the authors themselves were not the only ones who were producing meaning. So there's already sort of an interesting interplay between the authors and, let's say, the directors of specific departments and of the WHO as such. And the press release about the study was produced by the media department at the WHO. And it got to frame the public understandings of the study, as well as the, the scientific and governance understandings of the study, because it was what was read, ultimately. Both the supporters of the study and the critics of the study read the press release, and the New York Times article that followed it, rather than the original article and they were simpler they had a message the message was it's confirmed that cutting is a killer so it was a message that was familiar and in some ways reassuring to those who are opposed to cutting and they came to stand above the article itself so why then does it matter what the original article says when the press release And the press release is this institutional interpretation and construction of knowledge about the article when the release comes to the stand above the article itself. So the article just matters less. But then what was interesting is that the New York Times article had an equal amount of power, let's say, in shaping how this knowledge got to travel, how it was understood, and how it was ultimately framed by those who were using it. In the article I write that it traveled to the very authors of the study, so it kind of completed the circle of knowledge. In some ways, the Lancet article still retains a nuance that completely falls off by the time the study is reported by the New York Times. And perhaps that lack of nuance is appealing for people involved in interventions.
1: You also call our attention to the way, before it reaches the press, the academic journal in which this study was published shapes Mm -hmm. the sort of claims being made. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who has had experience publishing in an academic journal will have a, a good sense of this, but many who have a more idealized notion of science may find this quite surprising. What sorts of changes happen once the article gets to The Lancet?
2: The data I have about this process is less thick, meaning it comes from two sources only. So I'm hesitant here to make more definitive statements. So what I can say, what I write about in the article itself is the difference between the article that was submitted to the journal and article that was ultimately published. And we can use the difference between the two documents as a way of tracing the changes that happened as a result of the editorial process and as a result of the re- revisions that the Lancet demanded. So we see two kinds of things. One is that all results are made more certain. So some of that objectivity that the authors aimed for, originally is lost and instead we have this much more streamlined sense of an argument that's one thing and the other thing and this was really notable is that the analysis of maternal mortality which was simply mentioned in the original draft is now fleshed out in greater detail and also assumed to be a category of knowledge which is not actually supported by the numbers that are given. So it's something that would really raise red flags were it not already an assumed and a given. I can say from my own experience publishing in anthropological journals that the willingness of authors varies greatly in terms of what kind of changes they're going to make. I have often been willing to make quite a few and was sometimes asked even to introduce analyses that I just mentioned there. So somebody asked me once, hey, the gender dimension in this particular respect is missing. And this was somebody who was familiar with the situation who said, I believe it's there. And then I Looked back at my data and at my thought processes, and thought, "Okay, I can flesh this out." But really, it wasn't something that I was bringing to it in, in that particular moment, in that particular site, to the table. And so, this is something that peer reviewers ask for, and that editors can ask for as well. So, it's not unusual that something that is introduced in the draft submitted will be reshaped later on. And so what happened in this process is in some way not unusual except for that one issue, the question of maternal mortality, which is really problematic from an epidemiological point of view, which is that scientific point of view, if you will.
1: Finally, I'm wondering how this research has affected you in your daily practice. I'm wondering what sorts of things go through your head when you encounter the health section of a newspaper or a television report about the latest scientific discovery, and whether you have advice for the rest of us when we start reading these sorts of articles.
2: So this study is quite a bit different from the usual health section. Uh, So I'm going to restrict my answer to the New York Times, which is the newspaper that I read. And so much of its health section is about studies that are aimed at improving or telling us something about our personal health. You know, which vitamins are better for you or which kinds of exercise or which kinds of food or... So the kind of subject that is being interpolated by the New York Times health section is usually middle class or upper middle class person concerned about their own health and... This WHO study was not like that. This is something that the New York Times framed in more humanitarian, more global terms. And as such, it received a different kind of response. So for me then, personally, when I encounter those personal health articles, I do think about wanting to read the actual article itself. At least the abstracts are available in PubMed, and one can read those, if nothing else. And mostly, I mostly I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that interested in, uh, I mean, I'm interested in doing my personal health, but it's not one of my, you know, guiding, guiding issues in life.
1: But so, what about those sorts of public health studies? I mean, we see every now and then the latest issue about... Mm-hmm. whether circumcision can cut down on AIDS or not, or whether a certain distribution of a drug can reduce malaria rates or something mm-hmm. like that. Do you have a sort mm-hmm. of different reaction to those sorts of studies now?
2: Yes and no. I mean The male circumcision one is a really good example. I have been following the medical debate for a long time. And it seems from an anthropological perspective that that is not a conclusive debate either. But it is something that has been taken as conclusive by the Global Health Establishment. So this idea that circumcising men is going to cut down on their susceptibility for HIV-AIDS, their risk for HIV-AIDS, is widely accepted now. And so the only question asked is how do we propagate this? And that is really quite different from the kinds of questions that are going on, let's say, in the Journal of Medical Anthropology, where people ask, well, what do we really know about this? So there is a little bit of a discrepancy then. There are two very different discursive fields, how anthropologists look at it and not only anthropologists but others contribute to the anthropological debate and then how public health practitioners look at it. And so I even prior to conducting this research, I had to bring skepticism to the public health claims, knowing the circulation of this debate in anthropology. And so I believe that skepticism is is a healthy one for for lots of people, including the claims about wonder drugs and so on.
1: So everybody out there should read critically and read anthropologically. <laughs> and a great place to start is Saida Hojic's article in our February 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology. Saida Hojic, thank you so much for joining us on Anthropod. And we look forward to following up with you and to hear what exciting new meanings happen as public representation of your academic article circulates <laughs> in this podcast.
2: <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jen.
1: One thing that the anthropology of science has taught us is that science, whether of the social variety or the physical variety, is never simply about the scholar and the world that they study. It always takes place in a conversation. We read each other's work and we see new possibilities. We see different angles on the same subject. And it's with that in mind that we've invited Betsy Breda, a postdoctoral research associate in the Center for Health and Well-Being at Princeton University, to do a brief commentary with us.
3: There are two aspects of the article that I find particularly noteworthy. One is the way in which Hojic traces the production of knowledge about female genital cutting, mutilation, however one would like to phrase it, along a set of institutional lines, those lines being also made up by relationships amongst individuals. So she follows a Ghanaian doctor who she meets through an NGO to Geneva in order to track the process by which the study that will form the basis for the report, that will form the basis for articles published elsewhere, the Lancet Journal in particular, come about. On the one hand, this is the production Of knowledge in a field called global health. But what the article demonstrates very beautifully is this is not global in the sense of being evenly dispersed across the globe. It's global in the sense that it's meant to have a claim toward something like universal applicability. But it's not global in the sense that it comes from everywhere. It happens in very particular institutions, in this case, the WHO, amongst groups of scientists who are not from everywhere. There's a particular group of people with a particular set of stakes in the way the knowledge is produced and the way that it is framed and circulated to outside institutions. She shows very nicely that the scientists involved in the report are very aware of the ways in which it might be taken up by other groups, other institutions, and the ways in which they need to frame it in order to have it appear as credible to other institutions. So there's something very nice about the way in which she peels the back off the production of a study in order to show the complexity of relationships and institutions that go into making that up, but also into the limited scope of those participants. It's not everyone in the room. It's a limited group of people in the room. So it's a highly particular group of people who are working very hard in order to not appear so particular, or at least not have the study appear so very particular, but frame it in such a way as to make it seem as though all of its particularities and even all of its uncertainties go away. So it reminds me a bit about a piece uh, by Johanna Crane where she's documenting the production of another article that was published in The Lancet in which the authors proposed a common definition for global health. And Crane attended the conference sponsored by the Consortium of Universities in Global Health that led to the publication of this article in The Lancet, which is less a study like the like the one Hojic studies, but still a position paper. And Crane points out that during the one moment in the conference when the four or five delegates who were not from North America held the floor, the question of what global health meant became extraordinarily complicated. The delegates began asking questions like, were they already doing global health by virtue of working in Haiti or East Africa? Do their medical students need to find poorer countries in which to work in order to have a global health experience? And Crane points out very astutely, I think, that all of those questions disappear in the framing of the common definition. So it's important to think about in global health what kinds of things are written out in the institutional demands for certainty, consensus, etc., and what sorts of power relationships we see in that condensation and in that filtering. Point number two about Hodrick's piece is... It makes me think of a phenomenon that I feel like I'm seeing in the anthropology of science more generally. I think that the anthropology of science has been very, very good at drawing attention to the complexity of objects, the way objects are taken up, what they carry with them, what they don't carry with them, everything from polymerase chain reaction machines to very mundane objects. Vanessa Hildebrandt has done some lovely work on the way that scissors come to mediate relationships between Indonesian midwives, their clients, and the state. So on the one hand, science and technology studies and the anthropology of science has been very good at thinking very deeply and in very complex and nuanced ways about objects. That said, anthropologists of science, when they encounter language, they seem to stay in what you might say is their comfort zone. So something I find interesting about Hojic's piece is on the one hand, she's tracking the production of a text. She draws attention to the complexity of authorship, the way that certain discourses are taken up and reframed as they move through publics. But she doesn't go for something like attention to genre or intertextuality. Again, this is not to say that one approach is better than the other or fault her approach. It's more a question of scale. What would we see if we started thinking about the production and circulation of genres? What would we see if we look at what this object, whether it's cutting or mutilation or what one calls it, If we look through the contests over that terms, it's more a question of scale. This is something I point to in a piece I published recently in American Ethnologist, which is that as productive as ideas of translation have been in science and technology studies and the anthropology of science, it actually tends to shift attention away from language rather than focusing on how language in science actually works.
1: Betsy Breda, thank you so much.
3: It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed discussing the piece.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. You can find a link to Saida Hoach's article on our website, Cullanth.org, that's C-U-L-A-N-T-H. Where you can also find the show notes with all the information about this and all the other episodes. We also have links there for you to sign up and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher so that you never miss a future episode. You can also leave us a comment on that website, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. We are Cultural Anthropology and at C-U-L-A-N-T-H. And hey, we now have an email address, so you can send all your thoughts about today's episode, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, or just drop us a line and say hello. We are anthropod at cullanth.org. Send us a good message. We'll read it out loud on the next show. Thanks so much. See you next time.